Good morning, I'm Justin Gottlieb. I'm one of the pastors here at Seven Mile Road, and it is a great joy um, to get to stand before you this morning and preach from the Word um, and to preach about God's fatherhood of us. Uh, Really excited. I've been excited all week long. And uh, yeah, so we'll get after this in a second. But I'm going to start by telling you um, something that you may or may not know. Um, But there's not a whole lot of hockey that gets played in Arkansas. So... It's a combination, I think, of the, the, the lack of cold winters, and, uh, which I think is essential to hockey. Um, and that's a joke, but thanks. Um, it, it's essential to hockey, as well as the warm summers. It's just not a good place. So I didn't grow up uh, with a great exposure to hockey as a sport, and, and was not really appreciative of it at all. So when Mariah and I moved here... Um, we realized that hockey was kind of a big deal. Um, like, it was kind of a big deal. I mean, it's still not baseball or football, but it's kind of a big deal. So anyway, wanting to check that out, we went to a Bruins game. We decided we wanted to go to a Bruins game. And so a couple of years ago, I bought the tickets. We went to dinner. We showed up at the Bruins game. And we walked in before the game started. <clears throat> and this was in the, you know, just before it started, the first period. So we watched the first period, and we really enjoyed it. So the speed of the players as they skated around, um, was was great. The quickness of the goalies as they, whatever goalies do, as they do that. Um, I, I've really studied this sport a lot since then, you can tell. But And the insanity that is the hockey fight. I mean, let's face it. So I'm a UFC fan. I don't understand what's legal about fighting in hockey. Like, I just don't. Like, when you hit somebody to the ground and we stop it, no, it's just getting started then. But anyway, so we were really enjoying the game, though. We were enjoying the first period. And, uh, and we were thinking, this sport has a lot of stuff going for it. It was a good sport, and it was being played well by professionals. And, uh, and it was hockey that you could appreciate and want to be a part of. And, uh, and so then the first period ended. And one of the things they had planned for this night, for the intermission, um, was for like some, some youth hockey, like some five- or six-year-olds, to go out onto the ice for about five minutes or so during intermission. And... Uh, Everything that we had just seen that was a good example of hockey was stripped away. And we saw a horrible example of hockey. No offense to the four and five-year-olds in the room. But, but really, these kids, like the coordination of the kids kept them from really skating well. But that's fair. After all, they probably couldn't tie their own skates. And so there ends up being this huge mass of kids falling all over each other. And, and they don't understand the spacing thing well. So like, it's really just the mass. Like... There's no movement. There's no passing because you can't pass to somebody that's six inches away. And the goalies weren't really skillful, but that was because there was no shot of the puck getting close to the net because it was just in this mass. And, and so everything that was good about the first period of the Bruins game was bad. And so, so five minutes seemed like three hours. So imagine with me, though, having told you all that, imagine with me, that Mariah and I had been running late to the game. And so we had walked in just as the first period ended and just as intermission began. Okay? We wouldn't have understood the beauty of the game because we would have seen an imperfect and immature example of hockey. So as we would have watched the kids play, we would have walked away going, what did I just spend 40 bucks on? And we could have seen the little kids tripping on their skates and never imagined... The, the speed and grace with which the professionals move with. 
And we would have seen the big mass of children bumping into each other and never understood that passing could happen or that there was any skill to execution or strategy in the game that, goes, that might go into a well-played goal. So if our first exposure to hockey had been um, that imperfect example of the little kids, we never would have understood the great joy it could be to watch a well-played game. Today, um, I have the great joy of preaching to you about the fatherhood of God. So I must warn you, though, that this sermon might be tough for us, and it's going to be tough for us precisely for the same reason that it would have been tough to understand hockey watching the four-year-olds and five-year-olds. It's, it's going to be tough because we all have imperfect views of fatherhood and what fatherhood is supposed to be. Uh, and that's because each of us has had imperfect fathers. And it's not necessarily our fault that our fathers haven't been, have, have not given us this perfect picture of fatherhood, but we still have to overcome that, okay? Um, we still have to overcome those imperfect views somehow. And it's going to be tough because of that inherent sin and flawed nature that was in our earthly fathers and is in our earthly fathers. So even the best of our earthly fathers is flawed. And so we come here today with this idea of fatherhood that is shaped by that, that is shaped by who our earthly father was. Okay? And because the earthly fathers we have had were sinful and fell short, um, and, and fell short of what it was really supposed to be, our picture is, is just not right of fatherhood. And so at best, our picture is of a sinful father who repented um, of his sins and moved forward and worked at getting better at that. And at worst, our image of fatherhood is that of a sinful father um, who arrogantly thought he got it all right or just flat out didn't care. And so our immediate images of fatherhood may look like a father who was distant, a father who was maybe at home with us, but really was was not there. So he could be present, but mentally was elsewhere. Or, uh, and for some of us, our image of a father might be abusive. So we may have had a father that, that, that was angry and took that out on us and, and, and it victimized us. Or we may have had a father that was overbearing and, and, and dictatorial and tyrannical and was all the time ordering us around and telling us what to do. And, and some of us might have had a father who was absent. Um, and so when we think of fatherhood, we think, ah, Nothing, like that our father wasn't there. For others, our father might have been misguided and so really worked hard at doing what, what he, he thought he was supposed to do, but it was always the wrong thing. And for others, um, we could have just had a selfish father um, who, who just didn't care about anybody else. And so, so everything was for him to, to consume and have satisfaction. In. And, and then, um, as I say those, it's also clear that we likely all had a combination um, so all that to say is that in this room, we have a bunch of different images of what fathers are and, and f- of what fatherhood is. And that image may not be appealing at all. And, we sh- and that's kind of understandable because we've had this imperfect image. So this becomes quite troubling for us, though, um, when we realize that one of the chief images of God is of God as father. Okay, and and we have to we have to figure out what to do with that. Um, We can't just go, oh, God's father, but I don't like fatherhood idea. So I'm not going to have anything to do with it. We have to figure out what to do with this fact. 
So, so what do we do when our imperfect view of fatherhood keeps us from understanding the great joy and blessing it is to have God as Father? So our approach must be to look at God's fatherhood first, okay? And look at that and realize that that is what fatherhood is supposed to be, okay? So fatherhood finds its purest form and grandest display in God, not in, in me as I'm fathering Naomi and, and not in, in some, some of you dads as you're fathering your children and not in my dad and not in your dad, Okay? Fatherhood's purest form is in God. Okay, from eternity past to eternity future, God has existed in the Trinitarian community of Father, Son, and Spirit. And He has always been Father to the Son. Okay, this is not something that God turns off and on. So there's not a moment that God was not Father. He's always Father. Okay, and even more than that, there has not been a time when God was not perfect father. Okay, he loves the son perfectly. Okay, and he has done that for every moment ever. Okay, even on the cross, the most excruciatingly painful and difficult moment of Jesus's time on earth, the father was about the glorification of the son. Okay, so even then, And so we must realize that God's fatherhood is the model, the definite article, the model, and the standard of fatherhood. And our idea of what fatherhood is must be shaped by Him, or else we might reject a good and glorious thing based on a bad representation. So for the next few minutes, we're going to stare really hard at what God's fatherhood is like. And as we do that, my hope is that we'll rid ourselves of images of fatherhood that are less than perfect and and instead find out what God's fatherhood is like and what fatherhood truly should be, okay? And and as we do this, my hope and prayer, and it has been all week, is that we'll be eager to embrace God as Father. So pray with me, and then we'll get started. Father God, we confess that our images of fatherhood are flawed, that we have not seen it in its purest form. And though we've seen great efforts, we haven't seen it as it's supposed to be. And, and at times that's hurt us and scarred us. And we pray now that you would overwhelm us with thoughts of, what, of how good your fatherhood is. Pray that you would move us and stir up in us great affections for you over this next few minutes and make us eager to embrace you as Father. Be with us now. Amen. So, as I mentioned earlier, God always has been and always is and always has been the perfect Father to Jesus, okay? And um, now we're going to look at four big ways that He is Father to us. And so I'm going, to give, I'm going to list out these four ways right now. Um, and this is not an exhaustive list, but I've just got 40, 35 or 40 minutes. So, um, and I love lists, so I cut it real short um, for you guys. But um, anyway, I'm going to go with these four categories of, what, of how God is Father to us. And we'll work through those. 
Um, so I'm going to list them. Here's your roadmap, and then we'll go forward. So first, God adopts us perfectly. The second thing is that God blesses us perfectly. The third one is that God assures us perfectly. And the, and the fourth one we'll talk about is that God disciplines us perfectly. Okay, so we'll get started with our first point. Um, that God adopts perfectly. Um, so while God has always been father to Jesus, God has not always been our father, per se. So since Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, we humans have made every effort to oppose God. Um, so, so not only have we not been excited about having God as father, we've, we've been excited about him not being father um, to us. Okay. The, the natural direction of our hearts has been to turn away from him. And when we disobey God, we aren't just refusing to play, uh, or refusing to play on his team. We're, in effect, enlisting in the army that opposes him the most. Um, so we're becoming slaves. We're enlisting ourselves as slaves to Satan, to the one who, who opposes God most. And in Ephesians 2 and 3, you, you don't have to turn there because we're going to be working out of Ephesians 1 a lot, but... Paul refers to all humans before coming to faith in Christ as sons of disobedience. Um, So our sin made us willing slaves to the one who most opposes God. And Satan has made his name off of disobedience to God. Okay, and when we sin, when we disobey God, we are willingly working on his side against God. So as those that oppose God and are eagerly working with his enemy, it's easy to see why Paul would say, you're sons of disobedience. Um, He would say that to us. And there's good news, though. So so we'll we'll move with the good news. But um, pick up with me in verse 4 of Ephesians 1, and we'll go from there. So there, um, Paul writes, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So we'll work through that text a little bit. The, the first big thing we've got to get there is that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Um, this was before any of us had had the opportunity, opportunity to do anything well or right or we hadn't had a chance to say the right words, or to read the right books, or to help an elderly lady cross the street, okay? We just hadn't had that chance. There was no merit on our side. God just chose us and, and, and just decided, boom, for my pleasure and my will, this is happening, all right? And Paul says it's so that we might become holy and blameless before him. He said that in that text. And that's interesting because, because holy and blameless is opposite of unholy and, and blamable. Blamable is the only word I could think of that was opposite of blameless, but anyway. So, um, unholy and blamable, not sure it's even a word, but we'll move forward. So God is choosing us so that he might transform us from being sons of disobedience into those that are holy and blameless. Okay? And the point being is that God is not choosing us uh, because we're good or worthy, but because we will one day be in him. And so in verse 5, he continues to explain what's going on. Um, in, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, 
according to the purpose of his will. So Paul continues with this language of choosing, and I'm not really trying to camp out on the choosing language, but so that we can see, um, so that we can see God's free choice in, in choosing us as sons, okay? He couldn't adopt us if we were already sons, so we need to again realize that we're coming into this relationship as sons of disobedience, okay? But, but the reality is that God has chosen sons of disobedience and then chosen to not see us as such. Instead, he has in Christ adopted us to be sons of God. God has chosen us before the foundation of the world, before we ever had a chance to earn merit, to be his sons in Christ. And if you believe the gospel and hope in Jesus, you are a child of God. And he gladly says to you, you are my son or you are my daughter. And he makes clear in this scripture that he's not basing that on anything else. Um, it, if it wasn't based on us in the beginning, it won't be based on us when we mess up either. And our adoption is based on God's choosing to adopt us in Christ. In Christ, God adopts us and we become sons and daughters of God. Never to be fatherless again. And so that's our first point of today. God, in Christ, God adopts us and we become sons and daughters of God. Okay, And he takes these sons of disobedience and says, you are now mine. So our second thing is that not only does God adopt us perfectly, he blesses us perfectly. Okay, And he does this in two big ways. The first is spiritually. So Ephesians 1.3, if we bumped up one verse from where we just were, it would, you, you would read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And I'm no expert, no blessing expert, but you don't get much more than every. So like he's withholding nothing, every spiritual blessing. Okay, but so that we have some idea what he means um, when he says that, I'll read off the list of things from this paragraph from 13, or 1.3 through 1.14, um, that Paul uh, lists. And this list isn't exhausting, but I hope that you might be stunned at what these spiritual blessings look like. So, God has blessed us with election to holiness and blamelessness. God has blessed us with adoption to sonship. God has blessed us with redemption from slavery to sin. God has blessed us with forgiveness for your transgressions and my transgressions. God has blessed us with knowledge of his will in eventually bringing all things under him. And God has blessed us with an inheritance, um, which, wow, the inheritance of a son of God, big deal. And God has blessed us with sealing in the spirit. So again, these are just some of the blessings that sons of God's receive. Um, But these are big blessings, okay? And God the Father is good to us. He's good to you. He's good to me. Um, and, and he blesses us these ways. And he withholds no spiritual blessings from us. And this means we don't have to wonder what might have been had he been good to us. We don't. There's no, oh, looking back, what if God had been good to me? No, he is good to us. He gives freely to us. And he blesses us perfectly. And the second way he blesses us, so that was spiritually. The second way is materially. 
And of course, we hear that God blesses us perfectly spiritually. And we think, that's great. But that's not food on the table. I think that's what we think, right? It's not food on the table. It's not clothes. It's not housing. But he blesses us perfectly materially as well. And his perfect blessing may not be, so this obviously is the caveat, his perfect blessing may not equal exactly what I think it ought to be, but it is perfect nonetheless. So perfect blessing from God is ours. In the Sermon on the Mount, we hear Jesus teach um, on, on God's blessing of his people, and, uh, and, and w- particularly with m- pertaining to material goods. So I'm going to read from Matthew 6. You don't have to turn over there. I'm going to read the passage, and, and then we'll just briefly talk about it. Therefore, I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body and, 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 more, and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor, sp- nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow, or tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So we hear there, straight from the mouth of Jesus, your heavenly Father takes care of birds. Why wouldn't he take care of you? And you have to appreciate the logic, really. He takes care of birds. Why is he not going to take care of you? Um, and he takes care of, of the grass. He clothes the, the, the um, grass. So why would he not you well. And he points out that the Gentiles, those who do not have God as their father, are anxious about these things. So so they're worried about the physical things like what are we going to eat and what are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? All that kind of stuff. And and at the end, he says, but we're children of, of God, the father. Okay, and the father knows what we need and will provide perfect blessing. Now, I, I don't want to hijack this this passage and take it and, and and say that it's only about spiritual blessing because it's about anxiety. But what I want you to see is that the grounding of all this, the grounding of, of, God, of Jesus' whole argument there, is that God is a good Father. And He knows you and He blesses you perfectly. Okay? And He says this, Jesus says this with such confidence in God's perfection of Father. So, He does and always will bless His people materially, and his blessing is always perfect. Okay, God is a perfect father who adopts his children and then blesses us perfectly. Third thing we'll talk about is that God assures us perfectly. So sometimes it's tough to know where we stand with our earthly fathers. Um, Some of us look back at our childhood and realize that we didn't always know exactly where we stood with our fathers. Um, and, and that may have scarred us at the time, and that may even come over to now. Um, 
And for some of us, I mean, it really does come over to now, but this can be a troublesome, troublesome spot because it makes us uncertain of what will happen next and whether we will have favor in our Father's eyes or not. Will we have poor standing? Will we have none at all? And so, so I, I don't know if you guys remember what it was like when your parents were going to parent-teacher conferences when you were a kid. Yeah, all the dudes are like, yeah, I know. Um, I was telling Mariah about this little story, and she's like, it was just you. And I was thinking, no, it's not. It's all the dudes. And I'm glad you didn't go through this, though. That's what I was kind of thinking. But so, <laughs> so what happens is um, the week before parent-teacher conferences, like, you would be concerned. And maybe it's just me. All you dudes don't have to claim this. Coughlin's shaking his head like, yes, I'm in. All right, he knows. So the week before parent-teacher conferences, you're like, what have I done the last six or seven weeks? And what can I do this week to manipulate my teacher to not rat me out to my dad? Like, that's, that's where I lived for much of my childhood. And, and, and so what do I need to do this week to make up for it? And, and even if there was an accurate portrayal of, of, of your behavior, would there be mercy? Would there be grace? You don't know. Um, and so you do that for a week. Like, that's the routine for the week. And, and you're really well behaved that week. And, then the day comes, the day of the conference comes, and um, I, don't know, I don't know that they do this here, but like they would cancel school, and so that made it worse because you got to stay home and think about it until the conference came later in the day. And, and so then it comes time for your parents to go, and they get in the car, and they drive off, and, and so you're calculating, like, how long is it going to take them to drive to school? How long should they be with the teacher? If things go really bad, how long will they be with the teacher? And how long will it take them to get home? And then you wait. And you wait. And that hour is like five hours. It just is. Okay? And, and finally, the car would pull back into the driveway, and you try to act cool. Right, Chris? Try to act cool. Like, I was good. Why, why would I be worried? And they come in the house, and you're just acting like, I haven't done anything wrong. And all this time, you've been wondering, you've been wondering, What's going to happen, okay? Where am I going to stand? Am I going to be rewarded or am I going to be punished, okay? Am I going to get new kicks for basketball or, or am I going to have to quit the team? I had to quit the team. I'm just saying. I still remember that, mom and dad, if you hear this recording. Um, would you get to go to the movies with friends or would you stay home reading the books that you didn't read the previous two months? And even with really good parenting, the point is that it could be lots of, there could be lots of uncertainty with how they'll respond. And it, it could be enough to drive a little kid crazy, I think. Where would you stand? And so it would be really easy for us to walk into our relationship with God the Father with this type of mentality. Okay? And, and we could be carrying this concern of what might happen to me eternally when I mess up. Okay? And what might happen to me eternally when I'm found out? And that could be really problematic. But there's good news. With God the Father, there need be no guessing as to where we stand. God assures us perfectly of our standing with Him. So this is Ephesians 1.13. If you've been camping out in Ephesians 1, just bump down to 13 and 14 and I'll read this. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. 
to the praise of his glory. So when you heard the gospel and it believed and believed it, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Done. Okay? God will not let us go, nor will he turn his back on us. Okay? And if we are in Christ, he is our Father, and that will never change. It won't. So if you've believed the gospel, if you believe that Jesus lived a sinless life, was crucified for your sins, my sins, was resurrected, and will return to judge sin and glorify his saints, then the Holy Spirit dwells in you, okay, and assures you and seals you, okay? So not only are you sealed, but your heavenly inheritance is guaranteed by the Spirit. So this inheritance comes to the children of God. God is a perfect Father who adopts us, blesses us, and assures us of our sonship and daughtership. Fourth, God disciplines His sons perfectly. His discipline is another way that we're, able, that we're assured that He is our Father. For those of us that have come from situations um, where, where fathers may have been abusive or, or, or there's many ways that that could happen, this could be hard to embrace. But, but stick with me here. When I say discipline, I do not mean that God takes out His anger on the weak, okay? That's abuse. But discipline is focused on the good of the one receiving it. And so, so what I mean is that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world to be his sons and daughters, that we might be holy and blameless. Um, and then he blesses us with every spiritual blessing and all that we need materially. And he disciplines us perfectly so that we will be holy and blameless, so that we will be making progress towards holy and blameless. So I'm reading now from Hebrews 12.5. Um, forward, this is, Brent read this earlier. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more, much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So first in that passage, the, the, the author is quoting Proverbs, okay, telling us not to take lightly the Lord's discipline. And not only does he tell us not to take it lightly, but he tells us not to be weary when he brings it. Um, so don't be tired. Don't take it lightly. Instead, we ought to actively embrace the discipline of the Lord, okay? And the question then goes, why would, we, like, why would we embrace discipline? And But he goes on to tell us, and that's that the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises everyone whom he receives, okay? So God's love for his children means that he will discipline us. And when he disciplines us, he is loving us and treating us as sons and daughters. Discipline from the Lord is no negative thing. 
It's a beautiful thing for us. It means that we are sons of the Father and He is concerned with our holiness. He is concerned that we become what we are meant to be. The author continues with the passage, arguing that if God didn't discipline us, it would show that we weren't sons of His. And so we need to realize that a sentimentality um, that on the Father's part that kept Him from disciplining us would not be true fathering. It just wouldn't. So skip down to verse 10 with me. For they disciplined us, our earthly fathers, for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, our heavenly Father, disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. God's concern is not our comfort. It's just not. It's our holiness. This should be so exciting for us um, that, we, that He is concerned with our true well-being, with our whole well-being, and isn't majoring in the minors. Um, instead, He's a Father that is truly concerned. And He's truly concerned that we share His holiness. And His discipline is towards that end. His discipline is for our good. Now, the big question then will be, will we struggle and fight against His discipline? Or will we realize that we ought to be embracing struggle and discipline and suffering that our Father gives us because it is good for us and its design is that we would be holy and blameless. For the moment, discipline is painful. All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God's discipline will sting, but it has an ending with His sons and daughters becoming holy and blameless and sharing in His holiness. Um, it, so it's basically all that to say that it stings the way it ought to sting. Okay? It will sting because we're giving up sinful things that make us feel good now in exchange for eternal things that will give us eternal joy. So His discipline will sting. Um, and it's, it's going to sting in a way that, that really hurts, but never so much to crush us. And, and the fact that God disciplines His children and does so perfectly is a world-altering truth if we're willing to embrace that. Um, so it, if we'll begin to look at God's discipline through that lens, uh, then it will change the way we look at life. So children of God, your heavenly Father is working on you to bring about holiness and blamelessness. To do so, He will discipline you. He is working on you and He's working on me. And He will not give up or stop working until we are conformed to Christ. So will we embrace His discipline and all the hurt and pain that will come with that? And will we come to share in holiness with our Heavenly Father? I pray that we will. God, regardless, God is a perfect Father. He adopts us perfectly. He blesses us perfectly. He assures us perfectly. And He disciplines us perfectly. So my hope is that over these last few minutes, as we've looked at God as Father, that we will realize what a good and glorious thing it is that we can say, God is my Father. Because otherwise, um, if we don't look at Him first, um, it will be like looking at the four-year-old hockey game that gives an imperfect picture of what hockey is supposed to be. Um, 
and we'll miss out on the good because we have this imperfect, immature version of it. So look to God as Father. He's perfect. He adopts us perfectly. He blesses us perfectly. He assures us perfectly, and He disciplines us perfectly. We're children of His in Christ, so let's be eager to embrace Him. Let's take our discipline and our suffering and our struggle, knowing that we have a good Father who loves us and is working to give us great joy as sons and daughters of His. If you will pray with me. Father God, I thank You for Your adoption. You're free. Um, your free desire and your pleasure to take us in as sons and daughters of yours. I pray that you would be pressing into our souls the reality of that. And Lord, I pray that you would, you would cause us to see your blessing as perfect and sufficient. Pray that you would be pressing into us, that you don't let us go, that you are our Father, and you are eager for us to know that you're our Father. Give us great awareness of that, Lord, and make us a people who embrace your discipline. May we take our suffering well, may we take our discipline well, and may we always be a people who look at hardship and go, how can I not waste this? Do a great work in us. Spirit, give us great affections for our Father God and for the Christ in whom we have become sons and daughters.